Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Dr. Peter Berkowitz, who's the current Tad and Diane Taub Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. From 2019 to 2021, Dr. Berkowitz served as the Director of Policy Planning at the State Department and played a key role in America's policy toward Iran, Israel, and the Middle East. Dr. Berkowitz is a scholar in constitutional government, U.S. conservatism and progressivism, liberal education, national security and law, and Middle East politics. He's an accomplished author and political scientist, has written numerous books and essays on political theory. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So I read all your stuff. I find it really compelling and really interesting. I wanted to talk to you about foreign policy. I wanted to talk to you about a number of the big questions that we've got in the world. You spent several years, in essence, running the in-house think tank of the State Department, thinking about these issues in sort of an applied way, if you will. I wanted to start with China. How would you characterize the U.S. relationship with China? How serious of a competitor is China? And what choices does the United States have in its relationship with China moving forward? Well, again, Dan, it's great to be with you. And we begin with the biggest of questions. I regard China these days as, and for some time now, a competitor. Indeed, uh, the most serious of competitors that the United States faces on the international scene. I regard the China challenge as the greatest uh, challenge that the United States faces in our era. And it seems to me that the United States is still in the process of figuring out the proper balance of cooperating with China, countering China, and constructing in the face of the China challenge. And if I could, I would tell you something about how at Policy Planning we developed these ideas in a, in a paper called The Elements of the China Challenge. Yeah, you talk about this in this paper. What are the elements of the China challenge? So uh, the first element of the China challenge is stating it correctly. Many before us, and I should say many before the Trump administration, because it was really the Trump administration that broke with the conventional wisdom about China. Conventional wisdom about China had been that the Chinese Communist Party, if engaged properly by the United States and invited to participate in international organizations, would eventually willy-nilly liberalize politically, especially with Deng's transformations free market openings to the Chinese economy in the late 70s, early 1980s, this hope of political liberalization in China ran strong. We argued, picking up where other unclassified published writings of the Trump administration left off, with the assertion that, no, it has now become clear that uh, China doesn't seek, like other great powers, merely hegemony within the established international order, the one that the United States led in creating after World War II. China seeks to transform international order, place Beijing at the center, infuse it with authoritarian norms so as to make that order more congenial to uh, Chinese authoritarianism. That's, in a nutshell, the China challenge. How does the United States cooperate with a power with such aspirations? How does it counter it? And how does it preserve the free and open international order? 
People talk about having guardrails. Do we need to have some sort of set of, in essence, rules of the road for managing our disagreements with China? Isn't that probably part of what we're going to have to do? Certainly, we need these rules of the road. But even before that, but we really need, I think, to acquire a better understanding of what China is, what its conduct looks like, what the ideas are that are driving the Chinese Communist Party. For example, in the paper, we show that the China challenge is not restricted to the Indo-Pacific. Serious as the challenge is in the Indo-Pacific, important as it is to appreciate that China is in the process, China aspires to remake order in the Indo-Pacific, what we point out in uh, the elements of the China challenge is that China is employing the same schemes of economic co-optation and coercion in all regions of the world. And by the way, to the extent possible, not only within the Western Hemisphere, but within the United States as well. So first, we need to be alive to that. We came to reject this formulation from the Obama administration, even though they recognized the importance of, they called it Asia, we refer to the Indo-Pacific, but they spoke of a pivot to Asia. For us, that was misleading. Why? Well, it's a kind of sports metaphor. No objection to sports metaphors, but a pivot implies turning your back on the rest of the world. For us, turning toward China actually means an understanding the China challenge, understanding China's conduct, not only in regions, but in international organizations, means actually redoubling our commitment, redoubling our diplomacy, redoubling our focus on just the Indo-Pacific, Central Asia, Middle East, Africa, South America, and the other regions of the world and the other functional, functional areas. I could say more if you're interested about why I think the ideas that drive China are important. Yeah, tell me about that, because I just read a really interesting book called Invisible China. And the authors, they're both Stanford labor economists. They studied Chinese rural education for the last 40 years. I would describe it as Chinese Communist Party regime friendly or curious or something, I guess is how I describe it. I wouldn't say it's super warm, but it's clear that for these folks to keep access to the data, they have to be on good terms. And so it's certainly, you know, there's language like, oh, I, I, the leadership is very capable of taking on this challenge and they're very aware and they'll be able to handle this. However, they're in deep doo-doo. That's in essence what the book says. And so the book has this really interesting concept of, okay, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, when they escaped the middle-income country trap, and I didn't know this, what percentage of the workforce of those three countries had a 12th grade education when they escaped the middle-income country trap? And the answer is greater than 75%. Labor economists said, okay, well, what percentage of the Chinese labor market has a 12th grade education or higher? 28%. So basically, it's saying that they've got the money, the managerial class and the state, but they don't have sort of the skilled workforce to take them to the next level. And so one thing is to export socks. Another thing is to kind of make microchips and do problem solving and have an innovation led economic growth economy. And for that, you need a more skilled workforce and a large, deep base of it. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges for them to go to the next level. But at the same time, they've got all sorts of demographic challenges, as you know, they've got debt challenges. So I would argue I'd rather be us than them. But I do think they're doing some things right. And what I've said is if we don't meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries, they will take their business to China. We do need to have some kind of a an interesting offer, at least for developing countries or, you know, parts of the world, because otherwise, how many of the countries in the world, the number one trading partners, China, something north of 100 today? 
Yeah. And then if you add number two or number three or number four trading partners, it's virtually everybody. So it's a real challenge. And so I think it's a real issue for us. It's a real issue. And you've identified numerous problems. Let's start with China and its middle class and those who have not yet reached even what we regard as lower middle class. On the one hand, something like 600 million people in China live on $140 a month or less. 600 million. On the other hand, China's middle class is 300 million people, almost the size of the entire United States of America. On the one hand, you have a huge demographic problem for China as this 600 million acquires more and more information about how the 300 million are prospering. On the other hand, a middle class that we have to compete with that is the size of our entire country. So China's got a demographic problem, but still. It's got an enormous economy, in some respects, larger than ours. Still, I think it's 25% or so short of us in total GDP, but that's going to change over the years. With its vulnerabilities, China remains a formidable challenger. And if I say another word or two about the vulnerabilities, some of those vulnerabilities are specific to China, like the 600 million people living on $140 a month and the one-child, now two-child-per-family policy, and the terrible pollution, and the political corruption, and the tremendous cost of running a repressive, one-party police state based upon massive surveillance. This costs a lot. There are problems connected to all authoritarian regimes. All authoritarian regimes have difficulty innovating, difficulty correcting, because only one view is tolerated. They have difficulty maintaining friends and alliances. Who trusts them? Who are China's friends and alliances? North Korea, Russia, I suppose, in some respects. And furthermore, as I also mentioned, all authoritarian regimes spend a lot of money and divert a lot of resources to repressing the people. So yes, China's vulnerable. Yes, it's got weaknesses. It remains formidable and it remains formidable in specific ways. It's formidable because of its economy. This is in contrast to the Soviet Union, primarily presented a threat militarily. We would have to refine that remark. But I also want to say something about the ideas that animate China. These ideas have animated China ever since the Chinese Communist Party was founded. A combination. You can't really understand China until you appreciate that its party structure, its governance structure, is modeled on Marxism-Leninism. The party, General Secretary Xi Jinping, still professes loyalty, as all 90 million members of the party do, to the principles of Marxism-Leninism, and this explains the governance. But nothing in Marxism-Leninism says that China must, that Hong Kong must be reunited with China, that Taiwan always has been and always must be an integral part of China. Nothing in Marxism-Leninism says that Beijing must be the center of a new world order to understand what Xi calls the dream of national rejuvenation. To understand his community of common destiny for mankind, we have to become better students, not only of Marxism-Leninism, but of the deep traditions of nationalism within China going back thousands of years. So let me shift to something else, which is I would argue that we're seeing great power competition in a number of theaters. And I would argue great power competition has come to the multilateral system and it's exhibiting itself in a variety of ways. So in the multilateral system, I would say Republicans and conservatives have a conflicted view of multilateral institutions. 
The criticisms include that multilateral institutions infringe on American sovereignty. The U.S. shouldn't have to ask for permission slips to protect national security interests. Multilateral institutions always seem to have a negative view of Israel. Multilateral institutions are often seen as, quote unquote, inept and corrupt, unquote. Some would say we should just quit the multilateral institutions. Let's just get out. Let's cut off the funding and kick the United Nations out of New York. So some of these sorts of strands in sort of conservative thinking were reflected in some decisions of the Trump administration. I would argue with the declaration to leave the WHO that didn't fully materialize, I would add perhaps not the best of timing, to put it mildly, in the middle of a pandemic. I understand what the frustrations were, but I would just argue that that was perhaps complicated. I think the botched handling of the election in the FAO election, which I mean, is a very obscure thing, but it was a real wake-up call for the Trump administration. At the same time, the Trump administration put forward excellent people for UNICEF, excellent people for the World Food Program, excellent person for the World Bank. The Trump administration proved a sizable increase for the World Bank and led a very effective coalition to stop China from winning the leadership race at the World Intellectual Property Organization. I had something to do with the capital increase at the World Bank. I had something to do with the WIPO election. I had something to do with some of the OECD and WTO issues. All this to say, I think there's been a recognition, however tacit, for the most part, we're sort of stuck with these institutions and we have to engage in them. So how do you think about them? You could talk a little bit about the Trump administration thought about, but I actually think that's sort of less interesting and more sort of looking forward. I would argue we probably can't, quote unquote, U.S. out of the U.N. anytime soon. I would argue instead, I would rather put a lot of energy on making sure we get a handle on who the leaders are of these things and make sure we put in really good leaders who don't have to be Americans, but are competent and aren't going to be necessarily fully responsive to China. I would argue that the current head of the WHO is not great. And the other thing is it's really hard to get fired from these jobs. We had a chance in 2017 to put somebody else instead of him in that job, and we didn't. We're going to come out with a report later this week or next week about American leadership in the leadership elections. Based on my experience of WIPO and the OECD, there's sort of 200 of these organizations. Every year, about 10 or 15 of these come due, and at least one big race happens every year. We know kind of one or two years in advance, we have to kind of get ahead of. And oftentimes the United States has come, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, sort of in the 11th hour and shown up like we did at the FAO race, and it's sort of too late. So what's your reaction to all that on the multilateral system? First of all, I largely agree with your critique and your recommendations. Look, there's a lot wrong with international organizations. No doubt some can't be reformed. Some can. As the introduction here sort of suggested, where have we had most success? Where is there most opportunity? And those that deal with social and economic assistance, that's where the Trump administration had its greatest successes. That's where we should continue to focus. I'm all in favor, by the way, of we didn't succeed terribly in this regard, but standing up within State Department group, a task force to reconsider targets of opportunity. And as we did with WIPO, really have concerted efforts to place in positions of leadership our people, where people are friendly to our principles, the most important principle being freedom. And by the way, here's a crucial reason for doing it and a crucial reason we simply can't turn our back on international organizations, no matter how frustrated we are with them. The Chinese see a tremendous opportunity in international organizations. These organizations are not going away. The Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, has made tremendous efforts, tremendous investments in putting their people in positions 
of power. Turning our backs on international organizations doesn't mean they cease to be powerful. It means that we cede influence to the Chinese. Now, there are exceptions here. For example, when I was head of policy planning, I would often hear from Europeans that Americans are turning their backs on international organizations as evidenced by our decision to withdraw from the United Nations Human Rights Council. And this displayed, by the way, the Trump administration's repudiation of the place of human rights in American foreign policy. Never mind for the moment that Secretary Pompeo created a commission, Commission on Unalienable Rights, to report to him about the central importance, how, how we should understand the central importance of human rights. What is the explanation of the Trump administration's decision to withdraw? We came to the conclusion that after many, many years, that the United Nations Human Rights Council was not subject to our reform. It continued to be run by authoritarian states. It continued to devote about half of its resolutions to denouncing a single state. Israel has a population of nine million people out of seven and a half billion people, or maybe a little more now. It was doing more actually to undermine a serious commitment to human rights and international organizations than most any other organization. We regarded that withdrawal as not a repudiation of human rights, but taking human rights seriously, not participating in the perversion of an international organization to undercut human rights. This is what we need to remember when it comes to international organizations. If I may make one more point that came up often in conversations with Europeans and sometimes progressives in the United States. The Trump administration, in its critique of some international organizations, but as you've already pointed out, not all, and we participated vigorously in some, a typical critique was the Trump administration rejects the very notion of multilateralism. I discovered that this critique is based upon a very peculiar understanding of the term multilateralism. And I think that we need to clarify understanding here. For many European diplomats and progressives in the United States, multilateralism has come to mean United Nations supremacy. Secretary Pompeo took the lead in renewing the Quad, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States in the efforts to defend all four countries' interests in a free and open international order in the face of the China challenge. From some of our friends' point of view, this is contrary to multilateralism because it doesn't involve the UN. For us, it's an instance of multilateralism, working with friends, allies, and partners. Going forward, I think that the United States, one must look for opportunities to reform and build on international organizations, recognizing that there will be some instances when we can't, and there's a lot of work to do. We, of course, need to strengthen bilateral relations with countries that share our interests in a free and open international order. And the United States actually should be engaged in the multiplication of various groupings like the Quad. I think of the international order as, in a way, a civil society, the way Tocqueville thought about multiplying associations in the United States and civil society to take care of specific problems, just as we have the Quad to deal with specific challenge in the Indo-Pacific, the United States needs more such associations with friends, partners, and formal treaty-based allies to deal with the multiplicity of challenges. But these days, many of these challenges are ultimately traceable back to the threat to freedom posed by China. Thank you. That is really, really interesting. I want to shift to something else. I want to talk about Afghanistan. So I think it's taken up a lot of oxygen and attention the last six weeks. There has been a collapse in Afghanistan. Taliban have taken over the country. 
Some have argued that the Biden administration inherited a difficult hand from the Trump administration with 2,500 troops remaining in agreement to pull out by May of 2021. So how much is this is Donald Trump's fault, if you will, or the Trump administration's fault? And how much of this is the responsibility of the Biden administration? How much of this is really about the failure of the Afghan political class more broadly? And then 10 years from now or 30 years from now, are we going to point back and say this was like a geopolitical catastrophe? Or are we going to look at this and say this was bad, but this is something we can recover from? Is this a Suez Canal moment for us? Well, I certainly hope we can recover from it. Let's start with beginning. Yes, of course, the Biden administration inherited a difficult hand from us, from the from the Trump administration. But we need to immediately add the Trump administration inherited a difficult hand from the Obama administration. Why? Because Afghanistan is a difficult situation. First point. Second point, I'll speak bluntly. It is a lie, a lie that the Biden administration's hands were bound by the Trump administration. The Doha agreement was an agreement and not a treaty. In 2015, Senator Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton, generously in an open letter posted online, explained to the Ayatollahs of Iran the difference between an executive agreement and a treaty. A treaty is the law of the land. An executive agreement is agreement between that president and a foreign body, in this case, an entity. The Biden administration was not bound. The Obama administration showed perfectly well that it is capable of rejecting Trump administration policy, preferences, and initiative. It did this beginning on the first day. If Joe Biden had said that I'm not interested in doing this way, this was ill-conceived, who in the Democratic Party would have defended Donald Trump in a Trump agreement? Moreover, if I may, in addition to pretending that it was bound by this agreement, Second point to make is, if it had actually taken the agreement seriously, the Biden administration would have noted that the Trump administration conditioned the complete withdrawal on the Taliban meeting certain conditions, which the Taliban was not meeting at the end of July and, and in August. So precisely on the Doha agreement from February 2020, the Biden administration was not compelled to remove all troops by August 31st in time for a September 11th a 20th anniversary photo op. Another point, the Biden administration, and here it's not just President Biden, but also Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan persistently insisted that they faced a stark choice in Afghanistan, continue an endless war, which at its core was about nation building, or withdraw all troops. There was a third possibility they simply left out, and that was preserve America's counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan, which for some time now had been the principal mission. With 2,500 troops, 2,500 to 5,000 troops, the United States could have continued to gather and transmit intelligence to our friends in the Afghanistan National Army and could have continued to provide air cover for the Afghanistan National Army that likely would have been able to preserve what was in place, a stalemate. But that stalemate was to America's advantage, especially considering the alternative, which was the rapid and complete collapse of Afghanistan into the hands of the Taliban, so that now, in September 2021, the Taliban control more of Afghanistan than they did on September 11, 2001. This is an outrage. This not only disheartens our friends, it emboldens our adversaries. It gives the Chinese a golden opportunity to extend the Belt and Road Initiative into Afghanistan and to make deals to mine some of the estimated $1 trillion worth of rare earth minerals in Afghanistan. 
Can we recover from this? The United States can recover, yes. Very significant work must now be done, given our conduct and given the untruths we're promulgating about our conduct. Thank you. This has been probably the worst four or five weeks I've had professionally. Just watching this has just been awful. This has just been horrific to watch. It's just been too terrible. It's been so discouraging and disheartening. Uh, Thank you very much for that. I've been in the foreign aid business, and I've been around the democracy and human rights business for at least 15 years, really 20. In some areas, the U.S. has had success with supporting democracies and improving human rights. And we've also had successes with development, whether you think about the HIV AIDS work or Plan Columbia. And the other, we've not had as much success. I would argue that the Trump administration had a largely skeptical view towards foreign assistance in general, or there were significant parts of the Trump administration, including President Trump, who were heavily skeptical of foreign aid. And then I would say that the Trump administration took a perhaps a more selective view of democracy and human rights. And there was significant constructive energy around Cuba, Iran and Venezuela, all countries that deserve a focus on human rights or democracy. I'm all in favor of that. So I guess the question I have is, what is your view of foreign aid and the issue of democracy and human rights? Do you consider these effective tools And how do you think will these sort of tools be sort of also kind of under significant questioning in the future and future Republican administrations? They will always, it seems to me, be under uh, significant questioning, especially in uh, Republican administrations, because there is a great deal of fraud, waste and abuse in foreign aid. The question of human rights and foreign policy is always a fraught question because human rights must be balanced against the very difficult, indeed, stark realities of great power competition and vital national security interests. But what's crucial to remember is the balance and not to reject human rights and not to reject foreign aid. We do need to reform it. And by the way, the Trump administration was in the midst within the State Department under Secretary Pompeo, revising how we give foreign aid in light of the China challenge. Undersecretary Keith Kroc had set up the clean network to organize nations and companies to use only digital networks that could promise real security. But to support that in the face of the deals that Chinese presented, the United States, of course, has to do more than preach and plea. We have to do a better job of providing the targeting foreign aid, working with private sector, working with other countries to help them construct their 5G networks. Moreover, if I could say this, there are a variety of ways in which the United States champions human rights abroad. Begins with the model of freedom at home and goes all the way to sanctions and sometimes as an absolutely last resort. And in the defense of freedom and vital national security interests, military operations. But if I may, I want to tell a quick story about how important speaking in favor, championing human rights can be. In the fall of 2019, I was actually at Stanford University and I heard an interview with Jimmy Lai, who is a tycoon in Hong Kong, since imprisoned. But at the time, he was prominent for leading the pro-freedom, pro-democracy forces in Hong Kong. And he spoke with sadness because were not prevailing. This was fall of 2019. At the end of the interview, he was asked by my Hoover Institution colleague, Peter Robinson, who was conducting the interview, Jimmy, you've you've sketched the situation. It seems serious. What can the United States do to help you and your movement defending freedom and democracy in Hong Kong? Jimmy said, I'll tell you, we don't need more of your tanks. We don't need American tanks in the streets of Hong Kong. And we don't need higher tariffs and lower tariffs. 
What is absolutely essential for us is that the United States cease being embarrassed about its own values. Now, actually, the situation sadly was worse than suggested because America has gone from being embarrassed about its own values to being a leader in denouncing the principles for which we stand, freedom, consent of the governed, toleration, pluralism, and so on. So I think that the United States has had to continue thinking and rethinking of the place of human rights in our foreign policy. This is why Secretary Pompeo created the Commission on Unalienable Rights, because time is short. I will only say that a very important part of our report was to show that Human rights are not some kind of invention that was forced on the United States from the outside into which the United States is now captured in contrary to the American tradition. At the end of the day, what is a human right? A human right is a right that is inherent in all persons. This country was based on what we called unalienable rights, which are rights inherent in all persons. This is our principle, our founding principle. Now here, for sure, a great debate opens up about what is the American responsibility abroad for these principles. It's not the same as America's responsibility at home. We're a nation based on the consent of the governed, devoted to securing those rights. But I believe that in 2021, we need to see that in order for America to secure freedom at home, that is secure our unalienable rights at home, we must take a leading role in defending freedom abroad. Again, what does that mean? There's a range of policy options from speeches given by presidents and secretary of states and others to educational initiatives, to foreign aid, all the way to sanctions and more. That's a debate to be had. We need to get beyond any embarrassment to the country. We should be proud of the fact that human rights are an essential feature of the American constitutional order. And our lively debate ought to be the instrumentalities, the policy options, the limits of America's knowledge and respect for a national sovereignty abroad, all the rest of the options we need to weigh in making fine, great calculations about our capacity to defend our principle abroad. This is really fantastic, Peter. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. You've been very generous. This is really quite interesting. I hope you're writing a book. You know, I follow your writings closely. I just think you're an important voice and someone that I follow with great interest. So I really appreciate you coming on today and being with us. You're very kind, and I appreciate the opportunity for a conversation about these important topics. Thanks, Peter. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 